Welcome to Arkansas AgCast, your source for the latest news and views in Arkansas agriculture. Arkansas AgCast is produced by the Arkansas Farm Bureau Federation. Welcome to Arkansas AgCast for July 30th. I'm your host, Ashlyn Essery. This week, we talk with the new Interim Director of the Rice Research and Extension Center in Stuttgart, and we learn about new funding for research on improving management of crop burns. We also hear from University of Arkansas professor Stephen Rickey, who was recently honored for his work on poultry broilers and food safety, and we get details on the Double Your Dollar Farmers Market Program in Northwest Arkansas. First, Keith Sutton interviews Dr. Aaron Shu of Arkansas State University about a federal-funded project focused on determining better management techniques for burning rice stubble and other crop residue. Welcome to AgCast. This is Keith Sutton with Arkansas Farm Bureau. Today, I am talking to Dr. Aaron Shu in the College of Agriculture at Arkansas State University in Jonesboro. Dr. Shu, welcome to AgCast. Thank you, Mr. Sutton. Glad to be here today. We're going to talk about something I I know is very important that you're involved with, and uh, that is a a brand-new cooperative study of uh, crop burnings. Uh, A lot of people in the Delta area in particular know what we're talking about, but uh, for people who, who don't know what crop burning is all about. Could you kind of give us just a a little uh, information about why crop burning is done and where and and why we would even want to study it? Absolutely. Um, So so primarily we're we're burning crop residues in rice systems here in east Arkansas, so uh, pretty much east of Little Rock and north up up to the Missouri border. Um, so just following the Arkansas, uh, the, the Delta region. Um, so, so we're gonna we, we farmers often burn in rice rice uh, crop rotations, um, also in, in rice soybean rotations. Um, so rice has a property when uh, at the end of the season when you after you harvest it leaves the straw. The rice straw stays in the field, and that stubble has what we call an allelopathic. Um, effect on the following year's crop, or it can have that effect. So the the two ways to deal with that are to till it in, um, or to burn it. And so th- those are the two ways that we can uh, we can deal with that rice stubble. If you till it in, that allelopathic tendency, uh, all that means. Um, and I'm not a I'm an economist, not a, an agronomist here. So <laughs> somebody else may speak to that, but. Uh, but basically, from what I understand, that rice stubble can inhibit uh, next year's crop from taking up the appropriate nutrients. And so it's really important that it breaks down in the soil when we till it in, or uh, if you burn it off, that, that removes it from the field so it doesn't have that effect. And so that's the importance of it uh, for farmers. And this is a, a tool that farmers have used for a long time but it seems like in recent years uh, there's been more increasing concern about some of the health effects that the smoke and and particulates that come off these burning fields might cause. Sure. Uh, Can you speak a little more about that? Sure. So, so for a long time, you know, especially here in the Delta and other regions of the world where, where crop residues have been burned, 
uh, it's typically been small fields and, and remote locations with um, pretty, pretty low populations, rural areas. Uh, and, I, and I think particularly um, here in Jonesboro, you know, Jonesboro is growing very rapidly, fastest growing uh, city in East Arkansas for sure. And uh, so you've got a growing population that's not really involved in agriculture. Uh, so I think there's two things going on. One, there, there certainly are uh, documented health concerns uh, from smoke, uh, fr from burning crop residues or, or any fire, right? Um, and so, so it's important. Um, we can talk a little bit more in a few minutes about how how we might manage burning to reduce some of those health concerns. But I think a lot of it is we've got people moving into East Arkansas that are coming from places that didn't burn before, and so they get here and. You know, they're sitting there watching the A-State Red Wolves play football, and all of a sudden you got a cloud of smoke rolling through, and uh, people are wondering uh, what's going on. So I think that's that may be part of the concern. Um, but there are, you know, particularly for folks that maybe have asthma or, or other, um, you know, lung-related issues, I think, uh, you know, the, the crop, crop burning at the wrong time uh, could, could create some problems for them. Well, here's uh, the good news, and what we uh, came together really to talk about is the fact that uh, through the USDA, uh, you have been part of a grant, uh, a big grant, $571,000, to do a more in-depth study of uh, ways we can manage crop residue burning uh, maybe in a better way. Uh, that's that's right. be great news to have that money and have uh, two or three years to study this more in depth. That's right. Yeah, you know, we're we're very excited um, to get this project started this fall. We just um, you know we're getting all the the sub awards arranged and, and got several great partners in this, both within Arkansas and outside of Arkansas, and and people from all kinds of backgrounds. We've got. You know, rice agronomists. I'm an ag economist. We've got you know atmospheric scientists. So so we're looking at this from a bunch of different angles, and uh, we're just very grateful uh, for USDA NEPA's uh, support of this project. And and as, as we've said, it's it's important for farmers. Um, you know, it reduces their costs and it reduces the time uh, that they uh, spend dealing with those crop residues. But but you know, they're concerned citizens, and we need to. Uh, be good neighbors and, and find ways to uh, decrease and uh, decrease the effects of that crop residue burning on these these local communities. So we're, we're very excited about this new grant. So in recent years, we've seen uh, some voluntary guidelines uh, put out by some of our, our state and federal organizations uh, for our farmers to help them uh, know when is the best time to burn if they're going to burn. Uh, that's all voluntary right now, and I know farmers would like to see it remain voluntary. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that point? Sure. Um, so, so yeah, you're, you're right. This has been around for uh, I guess about a couple of years now, but there were some some pretty big campaigns um, in the fall of 2019 in the in the burn season there, and um, so it, it's a really good collaboration between uh, Arkansas Department of Agriculture and, and University of Arkansas uh, Division of Agriculture, their Extension Program, and, and research scientists there. 
Um, even Arkansas rice and, and uh, the Arkansas uh, commodity checkoff, uh, rice checkoff, has been involved in helping uh, get producers on board to, to align with these voluntary smoke, smoke management guidelines. And uh, So basically what it is is, there, is there's a checklist uh, that farmers can follow that's pretty simple. It helps them determine if, if right now, today, is a good time to burn. Uh, you know, based on wind speed and humidity and, and the wind direction. You know, if you're close to a, a community uh, and the wind's blowing that way, then maybe you wait till the, the wind shifts a bit. Uh, so there's a checklist. There's also a, um, there's a pr prescribed burn uh, uh, dispatch center. So, so they're supposed to call uh, Arkansas Department of Agriculture, let them know they're going to do their burn today, and uh, they'll kind of you know, validate that, that it's a good time and help them go through the checklist, and that way we can track this a little bit better. Uh, so that, that's that been a really good initiative um, and, and a lot of collaboration across uh, the stakeholders in the ag community uh, involved in rice production. So now with uh, the study you're involved with and, and you've got uh, some partners in uh, – agencies and organizations all over you you're uh, collaborating with folks at the University of Delaware Miami University uh UA division of ag a uh, bunch of people studying this. what what will you be studying exactly and and what do you hope to accomplish uh by all this sure so um so really i think uh well, the collaborations are on a few fronts. We've got a number of, of questions we're looking into and a um, number of objectives of the study. Uh, so so I, I'd say the, the big goal here for us is, is uh, to kind of validate these voluntary smoke management guidelines that have been put out by ADEQ. Um, so, so these have been derived and put together by lots of stakeholders uh, in the rice community. Um, and, and with some assistance from uh, the, the fire forecast uh, system, primarily used in, in forestry for, uh, for scrap burns and, and forest fires. Um, so what we want to see, though, as a part of this project, is how, how well do these voluntary smoke management guidelines work? So we're going to actually set up some prescribed burns under different uh, you know, weather conditions and whatnot and see how well uh, this voluntary smoke management guideline works, and, and hopefully we'll, we'll kind of validate how well it reduces uh, smoke from drifting into communities. Um, so the various partners involved are, are helping at different levels of this. So within the state, we've got Dr. Jared Hardke uh, and, and a great group of scientists down, at, um, down in Stuttgart at the Rice Research Extension Center. Uh, so, so they're going to be helping us monitor a few prescribed burns down that way, and they'll be providing uh, agronomic advice, um, and, uh, and they do this, this research all the time. So they're, they're very in tune with um, what this means for farmers and how it helps them and, and how we might uh, shift management practices to continue uh, to keep, keep our farmers profitable. Um, on on the other side of the state, over at University of Arkansas, we've got Dr. Jack Cothran, who's uh, the director of the Center for Advanced Spatial Technologies. So they've got high-performance computing, and, and they use remote sensing, uh, which is you know uh, satellite imagery and things like that. So we can kind of look at patterns in crop burning in the past and match that with uh, atmospheric measurements. 
to get a sense for, for what the particulate matter looks like at scale. Um, so then moving out of the state, we've got Dr. Jessica McCarty at Miami University, Ohio. So I didn't realize Miami okay. University was in Ohio. <laughs> but um, and, and she's got a, a great background. She's worked in uh, smoke monitoring and smoke modeling all over the world, uh, in, in India and uh, Southeast Asia and in the U.S. Uh, so she's going to be helping us. We plug in. Uh, so, so what her, her role in this is we'll give her some of the uh, measurements of particulate matter that come off of these burns, and she can plug them into models and kind of track where they're going in the atmosphere. Do they go high or do they stay low? Um, and and uh, can we improve the timing of burning based on you know the fuel load, so how much rice straw is being burned in the field and the timing and, and conditions? Um, Another at uh, University of Delaware is Dr. Brandon McFadden, who's an agricultural economist, uh, mostly focused on, on human behavior. So he's going to help us do some surveys of producers and, and also some surveys of, of kind of the non-farming community members in East Arkansas to get a sense for how much farmers uh, value the ability to burn um, and how much citizens might value not burning. Uh, so that will help us understand you know, um, if there's some congruence there, if, if we value burning uh, accurately as, as scientists. Because um, right now, I think Extension roughly estimates that burning uh, saves farmers about $30 an acre, um, plus a lot of time. So that's that's not an insignificant number in a, in a competitive uh, commodity market. Um, so, so that's outside the state. And I don't want to forget at all, I've got two excellent colleagues here at Arkansas State University, Dr. Oh, Ross yeah. Carroll, uh, who is a, a physicist, and he's going to—he man, he's a whiz. Uh, so he'll—he's going to build some weather balloons, and we're going to attach some sensors to those, and we'll be launching those during these burns and tracking how that smoke goes into the atmosphere. Uh, and uh, Joe Ford, associate professor of graphic design, is going to help us towards the end of the project put all of this into uh, a web application. So instead of having to call the state or do a checklist and, and it just be a yes, no for burning, um, we're hoping we can, we can get a sense. So a farmer could go out in his field, plug into his phone, you know, here's my, my location, here's the time it is, here's what my fuel, you know, what my harvest look like. So you get the fuel load for the rice straw. And, and then it'll pull in some weather data and whatnot. And uh, what we're hoping for is not just a yes, no, like the current voluntary smoke management guideline, but maybe, a, okay, well, not right now, but tomorrow morning, or not right now, but two days from now. Um, one of the, perhaps one of the shortcomings in the current system is, you know, if a farmer goes out three or four times and every time he's getting a no and he doesn't know when it's going to be a yes, it's kind of hard to make decisions like that. So that's a summary, I think, of <laughs> that was a, kind of a mouthful to tie it all together like that. But that's the big picture and, and all the folks, um, the great team we've put together to, to approach this project. We should uh, mention uh, this is uh, just getting underway, correct? That's correct. You, this won't be a, a short-term thing. You'll, you'll be uh, conducting this study for two or three years. 
in the future to gather all the information that you need to make more recommendations. That's correct. Yes. It'll take us about three years is what the grant um, is, is how many years we have in the grant. We'll do about two years of crop burning experiments and and uh, another year to work on some of the surveying and and uh, the application and and, um, and and the outreach side of it. I know uh, knowing many of our rice farmers and working with them, I know they have concerns about uh, whether or not they should be burning and when. So all of this sure. is good news that uh, uh, we're going to learn more and maybe help fine-tune some of the tools they use to uh, maybe help them uh, even more and save even more money with their that's practice. That's right. Absolutely. Yes, sir. I, I think that's really the goal here is to, to create some dialogue, to answer some, some questions, uh, to improve the burning on the farm side, but also to reduce the uh, the impacts on our neighbors and community members, and uh, really like to see a, a win-win all around here. That's the goal. And I'm sure that's going to be the case. It's got to be good uh, having this type of information, and we appreciate you uh, taking time to try to explain to our listeners what's sort of a, a, a complicated and in-depth study, but in such a good way that we could all better understand what you're doing. Absolutely. Well, I, I sure appreciate you having me on, Mr. Sutton, and uh, always enjoy AgCast. So thanks for having me today. Thank you very much, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you maybe down the road as uh, your studies uh, got some time under it and uh, find out more about uh, what kind of results you see. Sounds great. I'll look forward to it. When Bob Scott recently took over at the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture's Cooperative Extension Service, he left his position as head of the Rice Research and Extension Center in Stuttgart. Dr. Karen Moldenauer, who had just retired after 38 years as a rice breeder at the center, took over as interim director while a search is conducted to name a replacement. Ken Moore talked to Dr. Moldenauer about her career, this new opportunity, and the advancements in rice breeding and yields during her tenure. I'm Ken Moore, and this week I'm speaking with Dr. Karen Moldenauer. She is the interim director of the Rice Research and Extension Center in Stuttgart. Dr. Moldenauer has been a professor and rice breeder for the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture since 1982, and she had just retired at the end of June when Dr. Bob Scott was named head of the Division of Agriculture's Cooperative Extension Service, and that created a void uh, at the research center, and she graciously accepted uh, his request to come out of retirement until they can name a new permanent director for the research and extension center. So, uh, Dr. Moldenhauer, uh, your plans changed rather quickly, didn't they? Oh, yes, they did, but that's okay. This station has been a very important part of my life for the last 38 years, and I want to make sure that it continues no to run question. smoothly. <laughs> yes, ma'am, no question about that. Uh, I see where uh, 38 rice cultivars have been released to producers uh, which have been grown on some 21 million acres during those 38 years. Uh, that's quite impressive. Which of those cultivars are you most proud and uh, have performed the best? Well, 
I think probably one of the major ones would have been Wells, which was released about 2000, 2001. And it was a major variety in the state for, I don't know, I think people still grow it. But probably until about two or three years ago, people were still growing it on maybe 1% of the acreage. So it's a very important variety. Um, Another one might be the new release that we have of Diamond, which has a a real bump in yield and has done very well for the producers that have grown that. There have been many, many varieties over the years that have been very important. One of them would have been the LaGru variety, which we released back in 1994. And the reason it's important is because when you make crosses with LaGru, you often get the high yield potential of LaGru into a lot of the progeny from the crosses. So if you look back through the pedigrees on a lot of my varieties, they will have LaGru in it. Even though LaGru was a little tall and didn't take off that well, as a variety itself, it was an excellent progenitor for many, many of the varieties we have today. Another one that I'm really happy with is my latest Clearfield release, which is CLL16, because it has the high potential, I mean the high yeah, potential yield of diamond. It will yield right with it. And it also has a PITA gene for blast resistance, so it has pretty good blast tolerance. And it's just an overall very good um, clear field variety. Uh, as many of our listeners know, uh, Arkansas leads the nation in rice production. Uh, our farmers here uh, produce just a little over 50% of all the rice produced in the United States. Uh, and the breeding research you and your colleagues have done is essential, as you've just said, to improving quality and yield, along with cooking quality and disease resistance. We all know we've noted through the years the uh, health and nutritional benefits of rice, uh, which are many. Uh, if you will share with us how rice yields have increased. You kind of touched on that just now, but since you began your career some 38 years ago, because uh, the numbers are very impressive how yields have just gone up dramatically. Yeah, I would say when I came, they and the um, state average yield ranged from about 95 to 105 back in the early 80s. And now it's been, for the last several years, the state average yield has been in the uh, 160s. And that they have just kind of continually gone up over the years. One of the big bumps was when we released New Bonnet. Um, and that was shortly after I came. Ted Johnston had developed that variety, and we released that, and it was a, it was a little bit of a bump. And then we released Katie and some of the others that had blast, a little bit of blast tolerance, and that gave another little bump. And there are lots of little bumps to get to where we are today. So, yeah, it's it's a continual process. And I will say that in the last year, Dr. Shaw and I have released seven new lines. So that in itself is impressive. <laughs> wow, yes, it is uh, quite impressive. And uh, because uh, rice is such a popular grain with its health and nutritional benefits, talk about how not only uh, have you been able to increase yield for our farmers, but uh, the cooking quality. Talk about that. 
Well, the cooking quality is very important, and we have traditionally had what we considered a U.S. long-grain cooking quality, and that's what most of our varieties in Arkansas have had or we wouldn't release them. Um, recently, they've been more interested in a little bit of uh, a softer cooking, little different rice. It still stays flaky as a long grain, um, like they grow in South America. So we have been working on some of those, and we've released a few of those to the, for the producers to grow as well. Jewel would be one of those, and I know that Dr. Shaw has some in his program, which will have that potential. Um, uh, Cooking quality and eating quality has always been very important. One of the things about a rice variety is if it doesn't do well at the mill and it doesn't have good quality, it really doesn't matter how good the yield is because it won't be growing for very long. So we have to look at all those things. And one of the ancient ones they used to talk about was they had um, – Bonnet 73, it was an outstanding yielder, but when they took it to the mill, it didn't mill. So it was a flash in the pan. Nobody grew it after that. Wow. Uh, and and yet, uh, you know, so many consumers, it, it's a, you look outside the United States, and it is just a part of almost every meal. In Asian countries uh, and others, uh, rice is so important. Uh, our exports are so important, and so, uh, but uh, the type of varieties, uh, whether it's long grain or short grain, uh, people like to include it in their diet. And so, what we're doing here in Arkansas is very important, isn't it? Yes, it is. And I also want to mention we have an aromatic variety which was released mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, Aroma 17. And in general, people really like the flavor of that variety. It's a jasmine type, which means it's a little softer cooking, um, long grain. And everybody loves the flavor of that variety. Um, it may not taste and look just exactly like the jasmine that's imported into our country from Thailand and places, but I think that a lot of the people that aren't used to that variety, the um, people from the United States, they really enjoy the Aroma 17 variety because it has such good eating quality. Talk about, if you can, I know you're a breeder, but uh, from your uh, experience, uh, the difference between what we traditionally grow and market, the long grain varieties, uh, and then the... uh, the brown rice varieties. I know that uh, we've educated students and others through the years about the difference between the two. And one is, uh, you know, you remove the hull, uh, the rice hull from the from the grain. But talk about the nutritional benefits and why those are different. Well, the brown rice has the bran layer on it. and Any rice can yeah. be brown rice. And the bran layer has a lot of the um, protein and some of the other nutrients that are not in the starchy endosperm. So when you have brown rice, you take off the hull and you still have the bran layer on it. Then when you take off the bran layer in the milling process, you get down to what's more or less starch. So that's the big difference between the white rice. The nutrients are in the bran layer, lots of them. And uh, those can be popular too, can't they? A lot of people prefer to have that uh, bran layer left on there. Right, and another thing, if you get parboiled rice, when they parboil it, some of the nutrients and things go actually go into the the starchy part of the rice during that parboil process, so it may have a little bit higher nutrient content. 
But if you buy rice, most of it's been enriched, so they put the vitamins and things back on it. Okay, okay. Uh, I know a number of years ago, hybrid rice varieties uh, started becoming popular, and that was something I think that maybe you were involved with. Talk about uh, how hybrid varieties, uh, what's the future of them right now, and are they still being grown? Oh, yes. Hybrids are very um, important. A lot of the producers prefer the hybrid varieties because of the yield potential, and they are a little bit more forgiving in some situations. Um, Marginal land they usually do much better on. And we have a breeding program. We've added one, so we have a hybrid breeder, Dr. Shakipa, and he works on uh, hybrid rice. Um, right now he's working on long-grain hybrid rice, and there are different systems in that. One is a two-line system. That's basically what he's been spending most of his time on because if you have a male sterile, you can cross it to anything in the two-line system. If you have a three-line system, the three-line system um, depends on like cytoplasmic sterility, so you can't cross to just anything. You have to cross to something that's a restored um, line for that variety. But the two-line system is affected by temperature and by um, day length. So it's a little tricky, too, when you want to produce your male sterile as opposed to producing your sterile line. But, yes, they're very important, and they've been increasing. And I think at times, I don't know exactly what it is this year, but at times it's been as high as 50, 55% of the acreage in Arkansas has been in hybrids. Wow. <laughs> okay. Well, that speaks to how uh, popular and successful those uh, varieties uh, are becoming, that they're grown that much. Uh, the last couple of years, it seems, uh, we all know that uh, rice is a crop that uh, it's flooded, uh, once it's planted and uh, and totally, you know, irrigation is so important, and that's why our delta is so, uh, you know, good for producing rice here in Arkansas. But uh, uh, we've had a problem with, <laughs> I say a problem, with the delayed planting, extensive rainfall in the springs. It seems like our climate's changing a little bit the last several years. Uh, but once we get the crop in the ground, it seems like the, the, the growers are able to get a, a really good harvest. Uh, talk about how the weather is affecting the crop maybe to your knowledge this year and what type of harvest we might look forward to? Well, I won't even guesstimate on what kind of harvest we'll look forward to. I think it should be pretty good, but I'm not I'm not a good person to ask about how things are going okay. to be in the future. But it um, did slow us down a little bit um, during planting. It was in my plots especially things were a little cooler it took a little longer to start growing and growing off and of course the later planted stuff grew a lot faster which is typical in any year but it's not been a bad year it's not been that hot so I think the only unfortunate thing is we had some really hot nights um oh shortly after the equinox like you always do every year at the beginning of July, mid-July, and, and even toward the end of July, it was really hot, and nights. And nighttime temperatures will have an effect on the yield as well as the milling yields. So we're not exactly sure how much effect that's going to have this year. But it wasn't as hot as it's been many years. Oh, no. No, no. We uh, we recall 
uh, some of those heat waves back uh, eight, nine years ago where we were over 100 degrees. And uh, as you say, it's really critical about those evening temperatures. It just never cooled off uh, enough, and that can do some damage. Uh, I know this was to be the week. I always look forward to the first Friday in, in August. Dr. Moldenhauer for the Rice Expo. Uh, that's our celebration of the rice industry in Stuttgart there, and that usually is an event that attracts uh, several hundred people to Stuttgart for that. And, and a highlight of the expo is always the field tours, where you and your colleagues are able to uh, take them out to the field and show off uh, the latest research that you're doing. Uh, not able to have the expo this year because of this pandemic that we're all dealing with, How are you going to be able to reach out to our rice farmers and share that information with them? There's going to be a virtual field day, and I'm trying to remember. I think it's August 17th, but um, once they put this stuff up on the web, it will be there. They're taking videos and different things for this virtual field day, so you'll be able to see the um, different researchers out there talking about their plots. Okay. Uh, and that will be available after the field day as well. Uh, can you share a little bit about for our listeners today uh, what uh, new varieties or what uh, those people viewing those videos are going to see and learn about? Well, as far as the varieties, um, there will be information on, uh, of course, Jewel, which was released this past year, CL11, CLL16, um, CLL15, those are both two new Clearfield varieties from here. Um, there will be information on the Pro Gold 1 and the Pro Gold 2, which are two that were licensed this year to um, Irwin Keith. There will be information on other lines that we have coming along, and also the CLMO4, which is a medium grain that Dr. Shaw has released. So, um, yeah, and then Lynx variety, which he released. There will be that, and they will go down the list and show you the other things. There will probably be some information on the Louisiana Provisia varieties um, and different things which are in the observation bay. And that will all be online so people can listen to it and find out about the varieties. Dr. Shaw will be doing that. Um, Dr. Shakipa in the breeding program will be talking about his hybrid breeding program and what he has out there. I'm not exactly sure what the whole program is, but I'm sure we will have um, someone, Jason Northworthy or someone, talking about um, the weed situation, mm-hmm. and we'll have somebody talking about the fertility. I'm not exactly sure who, but possibly Trent Roberts will be talking about some of the things out there. So it, it'll be a good field day. Awesome. Awesome. Always is. Always is. And you guys... Do a great job, uh, what you're doing there through the uh, Research and Extension Center. And I know uh, our rice growers uh, are more successful because of all the research uh, and the breeding that you have done. It just is ever-evolving annually, and uh, we're so proud to have the research and the breeding going on right here in Arkansas. So best of luck, Dr. Moldenhauer, over the next several months as you – lead the uh, effort there in Stuttgart and uh, look forward to learning who the the new director is going to be once uh, the university, uh, you know, has your replacement there. And and best of luck in your retirement. Well, thank you very much. And I'm looking forward to seeing who we end up with as a new director. I'm sure there are a lot of good people out there that will be applying. So 
it's an exciting time. It's exciting for me to do this again for a while. And I do want to make a note that um, the, high, the breeding program has had a lot to do with the yield increases, but you don't want to forget what we've learned about in weed science or what we've learned about in soil fertility that have also helped us make these um, the yields increase over time. Oh, no question. No question at all. I thank you for saying that. It's a team effort it is. Uh, with Dr. Norsworthy and all of his colleagues uh, in weed control and, and all of that. And uh, our, our end product, uh, the production that we have in Arkansas, is a testament to that. It is. And it's, it's everyone, pathology, and even economics and things enter into all this when we're doing things. So it's all really good. Well, best of luck uh, as we go forward and, and deal with this pandemic under these circumstances that are kind of forcing us to kind of change the way we do things. But uh, we appreciate you, Dr. Moldenhauer, for your 38 years here in Arkansas. And uh, thank you for giving us a few minutes of your time today. Okay. Thank you. Been you talking have a to wonderful Dr. day. been talking to Dr. Karen Moldenhauer, the interim director of the Rice Research and Extension Center on this edition of Arkansas AgCast. Next, Greg Patterson talks to Heather Frederick of the University of Arkansas Division of Agriculture about the Double Your Dollar Farmers Market Program that she oversees in Northwest Arkansas. This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas Farm Bureau. And on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, we've got Heather Frederick and she's in the horticulture section and as a program manager for the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. And Heather, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Greg. Now, you run the Double Your Dollar program. Um, kind of tell our, our folks, you know, what is that? It's up in Northwest Arkansas, and what is Double Your Dollar? Yeah, the Double Your Dollar program is um, a program we started um, several years ago in partnership with the farmers markets in Benton and Washington County. Um, and so what the program does is, um, we work with the markets to, uh, you know, provide um, or provide opportunities for low-income and food-insecure people to um, provide an incentive to to shop at the farmers market. Um, and so, the target groups that we are looking at um, in in the program is uh, people who are enrolled in SNAP, which is a supplemental nutrition program. Um, that's that's what was commonly known as the food stamp program right. and now is known as SNAP. Yes, yes. And then there's another program that's, um, it's originated by USDA. It's called the Senior Farmers Market Nutrition Program. And in that program, um, the Northwest Arkansas Area Agency on Aging goes through the process of like, um, you know, vetting those participants and making sure that they're, you know, the, um, uh, you know, qualified under the income restrictions and all that. Um, and so we're really just, with the W Dollar program, we're just piggybacking on those two programs. And so what it does is, um, obviously the Senior Farmers Market Nutrition Program, those participants have a, a coupon book. Um, it's worth $50 and that it's, you, they can only use it at the farmer's market. And so essentially what we're doing is when they, when they go to, um, when they go to use those, we'll provide a market match, a one-to-one -one market match um, for the whatever market they are shopping at. Um, so it really just it doubles their ability to, um, you know, buy food at the farmer's market. 
And similarly, and, with the SNAP program, oh, go ahead. Uh, these are all like healthy foods that are available too. I'm sure that's part of your goal is to put those healthy foods in front of folks. Yes, absolutely. Um, with a SNAP program, it works very similarly. So with each of the originating programs, there's a list of qualified foods that they can purchase um, with those program dollars. And so we're really just uh, doubling, you know, that, that you know, the, the dollars that they can spend on those food. And so what they typically include is fruits and vegetables, milk, dairy, eggs, meats, um, honey, um, the SNAP, uh, participants uh, can buy eggs. Um, we, uh, and the seniors list is a little bit more limited for some reason. I, you know, I don't quite understand, but they can't buy eggs with their senior farmers market nutrition coupon dollars. But with our double your dollar program, we've expanded that to include all of those, um, you know, whole food items. Um, and also they can buy plant uh, food producing plants. So like vegetable starts, if they have a, a, you know, a small garden or, you know, um, or herbs, you know, trees, if they need, you know, fruit trees, um, you know, so those kind of, um, you know, potentially food items. And it's, you know, the whole idea is to increase their food security, um, at the end of the day or at the end of the month. Um, but you know, it has some other really nice benefits as well such as supporting the farmers, our local farmers. Um, yeah, I was gonna say the, the local farmers uh, probably love the program too, and how do they benefit uh, from it as well? Yeah, um, they, yeah, we have a really good um, support from our farmers. Um, almost all the, you know, all, all the farmers at the farmers markets, um, you know, accept um, the SNAP tokens and the W dollar coupons and the W um the, the senior coupons. Um, and so, yeah, they think it's, you know, we've gotten really good feedback from them and it just kind of doubles the amount of money that these people can shop at the farmer's market. And so, um, you know, I think, you know, from, there's, there's the financial aspect of it. And so, you know, we can, we, the Walmart foundation has, has funded this program from, from the beginning. And, um, you know, we, we wouldn't be able to do this without them. And so every year we get about, oh, run 60 to $80,000 in double your dollar tokens that are essentially being infused into our local economy to, you know, support um, food um, insecurity in Northwest or, you know, alleviate food insecurity in Northwest Arkansas. And also um, those funds go to, to directly support farmers. And so who themselves may, you know, also be very, you know, low, it kind of, you know, fall in that low income um, bracket themselves. And so, you know, that's the direct benefit is that final financial contribution. But, you know, at least with the SNAP program, um, we hope that we're also impacting longer term food choices. Um, most of the, well, I would, uh, it's about 50% of this uh, SNAP enrollment is kids. And so, um, you know, if, if, if their parents are choosing to shop at the farmer's market, that might influence their long-term food choices. Um, and also families that are enrolled in SNAP, it's, it's, well, SNAP is designed to be a temporary program. And so families that are in, in Arkansas, um, families that are enrolled in SNAP are only on the program for about a year. 
And so if we can influence their choices, um, open some doors for them to shop at the farmer's market, you know, maybe that has, might have some longer term implications as well for the farms. Sure. So um, Northwest Arkansas is where this program takes place. Um, what are some of the uh, farmers markets in the area that are involved in and obviously with this COVID situation, some of those markets may have opened late. Uh, hopefully they're all open now, but what are some of those participating markets? Yeah, so the participating markets is the, are, are the, include the Fayetteville market, Bentonville, um, both Rogers Farmers Market, the Downtown Rogers and, and the original Farmer, Rogers Farmers Market, um, Springdale, Gravit, um, Siloam Springs, um, and then also this year, we're um, also working with the Food Conservancy, which is a newer um, organization in Northwest Arkansas. They have, it's almost like a CSA box subscription um, where they are also, um, they're eligible to accept SNAP. Um, and so we're working with them to provide, essentially it's their, their box program decreasing the price of that by 50% for um, people who are enrolled in SNAP. So that, that sounds great. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a way to spread uh, the local grown food around and it's consumed locally. And I know the fruit, Food Conservancy has been helping out in regards to that and trying to push that as well. What, now, now, last Saturday, I was fortunate enough, I got to participate in a recipe demonstration and tell us what that's all about with the Double Your Dollar program. Yeah, so every year with the W Tyler, um, we provide cooking resources. And sometimes that is just recipe cards, but also um, we've done um, some cooking demonstrations that are that take place right at the farmer's market. And so participants can go and, you know, buy the food, the, you know, the, the vegetables and food items that are, are featured, you know, right after the demonstration or before the demonstration because they get the recipe there. But obviously this year with COVID, Everything has changed. Um, the markets have changed. Um, you know, they um, many of them did not open on time. Um, many of them had, uh, you know, all kinds of restrictions. Um, some of them had online markets, and then they kind of led into the um, the walk up markets. Um, but you know, we had to rethink our, you know, how are we going to give cooking resources to people. Um, that are interested in, you know, participating in the W dollar. And so we um, talked it over um, and thought we would try this kind of online cooking demonstration where we have a chef and people sign up to um, participate in, in, the, in the online class. It's, it's open to anybody. Um, you don't have to be on SNAP or the Senior Farmers Market Nutrition Program. Um, anybody can participate. Um, and so uh, this, it's actually worked out really well because people can cook along at home as I'll write along with the chef that that's, you know, cooking the recipe. We give them the before, um, a few days before the event, we send out the recipe and the ingredients and so they can have everything prepared. Um, and, and the chef goes from, you know, uh, chopping up vegetables to, you know, having a final dish at the end of it. And so um, I think it's worked out really nice last week and we had some, a lot of good interaction and um, we have a, a couple more of these coming up as well in the next um, couple months. So right now you're doing one a month, 
you just do the July one, you'll have one in August, one in September, mm -hmm. and, and they all tie into what folks can get at the farmer's market. What are, what are some of the recipes that, that y'all are doing right now and, and who, who are, who's leading those classes? Yeah, so we had Heather Artripe from Ozark Natural Foods led our first one and her theme was all about, you know, keeping it cool in the kitchen. And so she um, did not even turn on the stove or the oven or anything, which was really great because, you know, it's July, it is <laughs> really hot outside and the last thing that people wanna do is turn on their, you know, warm the house up anymore. And so she really made a, a nice hearty salad that um, had a lot of veggies from the market. Um, our next one is on August 15th and um, Brightwater student chef Julia uh, Quijada is going to lead that one. And she um, is, it, that one is going to have a lot of um, Hispanic flavors in it. Um, I don't know what the recipe is just yet, but I'm, and uh, I, I'm sure um, it's going to be really delicious. And again, it will highlight um, you know, the items that we can get at the farmer's market in August. And then our third one is on September 19th. And um, we're still identifying the chef for that one, but we're looking at either a Marshallese chef or a Hmong chef. So, um, wow. It, you know, in Northwest Arkansas, we have, um, we're, you know, a, a lot of multicultural influences here. And so we really are looking to highlight some of those those um, those cultures and flavors. And so um, really expanding kind of uh, our, our knowledge and experience with, with you know, this, these cultures. So um, it sounds like a lot of fun to me. Heather, it sounds great. I'm gonna tune in for those as well because I love to learn, you know, great. other cultures, cooking and stuff. Um, if folks want more information about the Double Your Dollar program or being able to get on the email list for these cooking demonstrations, and I'm sure you guys offer so much more about nutrition and everything else, um, what do they need to do to uh, stay in touch with you guys? Yeah, well, there's a couple different places where people can follow us or check in, back in. We have um, our regular website is just marketsnap.uark.edu. And then we have a Facebook page also. And um, that's where, you know, kind of we keep um, everything up to date. Um, and that's at, you know, obviously Facebook, but just search for Arkansas Market Snap. Um, and that should get you to our, our Facebook page. Well, Heather Frederick has been our guest on the Arkansas AgCast today. And Heather is the program manager in the horticulture uh, division with the University of Arkansas System Division of Agriculture. And she runs the Double Your Dollar program, which works with the farmer's markets. Thank you, Heather, so much for being a part of our AgCast today. Thank you, Greg. It was great to be in with you. Finally, Greg talks to U of A Director of Food Safety, Professor Stephen Rickey, who recently received a Food Safety Research Award for his work on poultry broilers. This is Greg Patterson with Arkansas Farm Bureau. And on this edition of Arkansas AgCast, I've got the pleasure to talk with uh, Professor Stephen Rickey. He is the Buddy Ray Endowed Chair in food safety and director of the Center for Food Safety at the University of Arkansas's System Division of Agriculture. And welcome. Thank you, Greg. Uh, I'm happy to help. Well, 
you were recently uh, recognized with an award uh, from the National Chicken Council Broiler Research Award that you you received. Um, and, and, you know, in just my brief research of, of reading about it, it's based on substantial economic impact on the broiler industry, and obviously food safety is a big deal there. So tell us about the award. Tell us about uh, your research. Sure. Um, basically, we uh, this, re- this award is based on the last few years of uh, kind of the progressive uh, level of research where we've taken, you know, step one, step two, step three. And what we're trying to do fundamentally is – kind of do two things at the same time. Understand uh, foodborne pathogen establishment on carcasses, you know, where do they come from, you know, and that sort of thing. And then at the same time, understand the microbial ecology of the chicken carcasses themselves. In other words, who's there, uh, you know, are they good guys or bad guys? Uh, And, you know, and then do things on top of that with with, uh, being ability to, say, predict spoilage, you know, how long would you know, based on who's there, how long would that product potentially last? The other thing we're interested in, too, is uh, pathogens are relatively infrequent on on carcasses. And so what you really need is having what we call non-pathogen indicator organisms, which allow you to – these organisms basically are, behave like pathogens, but they're not pathogens. but And they're usually there at much, you know, higher levels, and they're easy to follow and track and, and, and quantitate. And so those allow us to say, well, is this particular uh, antimicrobial that we're adding in or intervention that we're adding in during processing, is it working? And if there were pathogens present, would it work well on those? And so it's oh, so okay. So you, so so you don't you don't have the 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 pathogen itself to follow. You've got you've got a uh, something that you've set up uh, as an indicator that you can follow through it. And then, then come to conclusions. Correct, yeah, because that allows you, you know, the the real trick with any kind of, of uh, analytics or assay or anything is you got to have something to assay, and so you're looking for organisms that you know are always going to be there, and they would act and behave somewhat like pathogens would their pathogen counterpart, so to speak, and therefore you can follow them, and and you're guaranteed you're always going to find them. You're always going to be able to you know count how many are there and that sort of thing. Okay. How about um, you did you did this on the farm and also at the meat processing plant, right? Correct. And what's the background there? Of of is is it just on the farm you were able to? In, in real life, you'd be able to get to that pathogen quicker the more you know about it? Well, what we're really trying to do is, is I kind of call it sort of, for lack of a better way to put it, sort of longitudinal multiple hurdle approach. In other words, what you'd like to do is reduce the level of pathogens at all stages of production, you know, from hatch out. So there's a number of different ways of doing that, you know, vaccines, uh, antimicrobials in the feeds, uh, uh, biosecurity measures in the growing houses, management strategies, et cetera, and then obviously those birds come into the processing plant. So what you'd like to do is hit the pathogen again and again and again with different types of approaches, you know, different mechanisms, et cetera, to where the pathogen can't necessarily recover once you've hit it once and then you hit it again and you just keep knocking it down farther and farther to where you you overall you reduce the 
load of pathogens throughout the process uh, and make it much more manageable. Right. So you're minimizing it as time goes on, and and in in essence, there you've created much better food safety. So so how did how did you go about doing this? Well, we we've done a lot of. I mean, we're interested in. Uh, decreasing the pathogens, say, in the feed itself, because certain feed components can be contaminated with pathogens. Obviously, limiting the ability of pathogens to establish in the gut contents of birds as they're growing out. And then, you know, preventing pathogens from, say, spreading during certain times of production, you know, limiting horizontal, what we call horizontal transfer. And then, obviously, once you get to the processing plant, why, you know, then, you know, having your antimicrobials in place there that you would normally use, it would both reduce bacterial load as well as pathogen load. So what is, because as I I tried to do my research here to understand what you were doing, explain to our listeners what next generation sequencing is, because it's what you used as you were doing this research. Right. Uh, Next generation sequencing is actually based off of, It's an old technology in some ways. Uh, It's based off the human microbiome project of a few, or the human genome project a few years ago, uh, where there was a major effort made to do what we call high throughput sequencing, and that is being able to sequence large batches of DNA at the same time and be able to generate a lot of data. And I'm old school. I came back in the days when we were happy to get, you know, a little bit of sequence, and that was <laughs> six minutes worth of work. Now, you know, it's maybe six minutes worth of work. And so uh, so that technique in general is what we use. We use what's called a, you know, a sequencer, which automatically does the sequencing and everything. And what we're after is we're characterizing the entire microbial community. In other words, we're not just singling out one or two organisms, but we're actually – we have a way to actually uh, 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 detect and identify the entire microbial population. You know, it's I call it, you know, right in 2020 right now we're doing the census of the human population, right? Right. So we're doing a census of the microbial population, and we're asking the question, okay, you know, who's there? Uh, what are proportionalities or what proportions are they there? And uh, and are, and are they related to each other? You know, in other words, you know, do we see certain clusters of t- uh, different types of organisms at, at, at certain places? Does certain interventions select against only a certain amount of the population, but not others? And these kind of techniques enable us to do that. Now, the goal obviously would be probably a dual goal of better growth in in the. Uh, poultry itself simply because it's healthier and better food safety when you get to the consumer. That's correct. I mean, they're not necessarily completely related, but they, you know, gut health is an important, we're starting to realize that's very important with the bird. In other words, being able to promote a healthy microbial population. I mean, I'm sure people have heard of things such as probiotics and those sorts of things. Well, I was going to say, yeah, people would understand what you're talking about. The general idea is, is we actually take what is called more of a prebiotic approach. And what prebiotics are, are they basically are uh, certain types of uh, polymers or compounds that you can find in certain feedstuffs and can isolate that actually go in and serve as specific substrates or, or nutrients for good bacteria that are already present in the gut. And we like that because we don't have to worry about 
externally adding in a live culture. We can just say, well, let's just feed the bird and, and therefore feed the gut microbial population to support these uh, certain species that are, would be considered better or, 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 or healthy promoting bacteria, and we'll just we're going to feed them substrates that will favor them to outgrow some of the other bacteria that are not as beneficial, or perhaps in some cases even pathogenic. What's it like uh, when you're doing research like this? Did you have an aha moment at some point where you went, "Wow, I didn't expect that," or? Or on the opposite side, it pretty much went the way I thought it would. Uh, probably a mixture of both. Uh, one of the things that we we shouldn't have been surprised, but as we got into it, it sort of confirmed it is, is the the what we call diversity of organisms. In other words, the 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 numbers of different types of organisms greatly increases as birds age, which is not a surprise as birds become more mature. And I'm sure this is true in humans as well. You know, you yeah. get more and more bacteria there that of different types. You know, it's and and I think I trained as a gut microbiologist, so I kind of appreciate this to some extent. Is uh, bacterial communities in the gut are sort of like an orchestra. They all sort of feed off of each other to some extent. In other words, there's a lot of interplay. You know, one organism may produce a certain uh, metabolite that another organism can use as a substrate, and so there's a lot of interdependence amongst the population and. These techniques that we're using now sets up and sort of confirms that, that there is a very complex, very diverse microbial population that only increases as birds get older. So it's a very metabolically active population. And, of course, the host or the bird benefits from that to some extent because some of those metabolites are things that the bird can use for its own health promotion. What's it like when, I mean, does somebody call you up on the phone or knock on your office door and say, hey, you're getting recognized with this award? I've had some of that, yes. I, uh, I think uh, I think the biggest thing I appreciate out of it is, is the appreciation of the industry itself. I, I'm a firm believer being at a land-grant institution and doing agricultural research that at the end of the day, we we try to do good science that benefits the agricultural community and obviously the consumers and you know and and, and so on and so forth. But but I think the recognition and respect of the industry probably means as much to me as anything out of this. And then I would add to that the wonderful people that I have as graduate students and postdocs that are doing the research. I'm not where I'm at without them. And so it's their fine work in the lab and their thoughts and that sort of thing. We're, we're, it's a group effort. It's not just me. I mean, I obviously supply some vision and things, but it's it, without them, if that's all it ever is, is a vision. How about um, in regards to food safety overall? I know myself included, uh, a lot of us, we take it for granted um, but it takes a tremendous amount of research and work. Uh, everything, as you mentioned earlier, from what goes on on the farm, um, uh, straight from the egg to the finished product that's in the grocery store. Um, let folks out there who are, are the consumers and going to the grocery stores understand how much work goes into food safety. Well, a lot of work goes into it. A lot of, you know, there's a lot of cost associated with food safety. I mean, it, and it's a very, it's taken very seriously. And I would add to that that we're all participants in making sure our, our, our food is safe. I mean, even you know, consumers have a certain amount of 
the more knowledge that consumers have, I think, on food safety, the more they can appreciate, A, what, what goes into making food safe, and, and by the same token, what they can do themselves. There are certain things they can do in food preparation in the kitchen and that sort of thing to protect themselves and to, you know, and to safeguard and not get sick. I mean, there's certain things that, you know, are just good, what I would call good consumer practices in terms of food safety. And, and so that all goes in, that all goes into it. And I think, and the other thing I would say is, is that, you know, we never want to make any assumptions. I always, I, I, use the joke at different times is is that we can make the best assumption in the world and put all kinds of rules in place, but the pathogen doesn't get that memo. <laughs> <laughs> We're learning that worldwide right now. <laughs> yes, yes. They have their own system of rules and operations and things and so we we never want to take it for granted. We never want to, you know, sit still or think, Oh, we got that one solved because trust me, the pathogen will come roaring back. It, it, it is always, you know, our job is to try to stay one step ahead of it. And staying one step ahead brings me uh, to my, my final question, which is, um, is this research complete or is it ongoing? Or did you learn something that makes you now say, ooh, I want to research this now? Probably all of the above. First of all, <laughs> Spoken like a true researcher. <laughs> well, when it comes to food safety, you're never done. Uh, you know, back to my point about pathogens not getting the memo. They evolve and change, and so so we must as well. Uh, and we have learned a ton. I mean, I think there are certain things like trying to figure out how to make some of these next-generation sequencing more applicable, uh, lower the cost, make it, you know, come up with more routine applications to where it fits more into what I would call everyday operations. That's one of our goals. And we kind of quickly realized that at the end, you know, it's like any shiny new tool or any shiny new toy when you get it. I mean, you think, oh, I can do all these things. And like any other technology, you realize, oh, it has some limitations and you have to take that into account. And how we initially thought we were going to apply it, mm, that maybe doesn't make that much sense. But you know what? This over here would make a lot of sense. Well, we've been talking with Professor Stephen Rickey. He is the Buddy Ray Endowed Chair in Food Safety, as well as the Director of the Center of Food Safety at the University of System Division of Agriculture for the University of Arkansas. And thank you so much for spending some time with us. Uh, congratulations on your award. And with your next research project, give us a holler, and, and we'll talk to you about that as well. Be glad to, and thank you. That's all for this week's Arkansas AgCast. Join us again next Thursday for the latest on Arkansas agriculture.